You're listening to the Irish Times. It's the most wonderful week of the year, Pat. It's Cheltenham. It is Cheltenham. I have two most wonderful weeks of the year. I have uh, Cheltenham week and Masters week. Um, <laughs> Christmas is not getting a look in in your house, no? Oh, Jesus. Christmas, yeah. Mind you, I do have a little child now, so yeah, that, that's probably coming up. That'll come up the charts, don't worry yeah, about it. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, Christmas is a long time away. Cheltenham yeah. is tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray! Um, yes, I, uh, I, I enjoy Cheltenham very, very much. Uh, I've written a column this morning uh, in the paper um, saying there are 28 races at, at Cheltenham across the week. I've given 28 stories to follow for the week. 28 narratives to follow, kind of. Stories, yeah. yeah People, okay. you know, like, you know, and some of the stories are amazing. You know, like uh, like in the in the article tomorrow, uh, there's a hor- the joint favourite is Lawler, uh, which is trained by a 33-year-old woman called Kaylee Woolacott. Uh, and the reason she is training it is because her husband was training it up until last January when he took his own life. And... Uh, when he died, all the reports in the paper were, you know, the usual, uh, died tragically, uh, uh, n- not suspicious, that kind of thing. But Kayleigh Wollacott came out and made sure that everybody knew and talked about the fact that it was suicide uh, and has been a very vocal mental health advocate ever since. Um, and she took over his training licence and now has the joint favourite for, for the article. Um so it's a massive, like it'd be, it'd be an incredible story. So there's loads of those stories around the, like the, the favorite. There's a horse I'm cheering for. Exactly. There's, and this, this is what the column was about, is that these are, are stories to cheer for all week. You know, Rachel Blackmore, the story of the season in, in Ireland, but has never, hasn't had a Cheltenham winner, could get her first one this week, blah, blah, blah. But the whole point, well, one of the points of, of doing the column was that um, there's no gambling in it. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gamble-free zone. The column is. Right. Because your week won't be gamble-free. No, my week will not be gamble-free. I think I will probably have a bet on every race. I think, you know, it is the one week in the year that I do all of that. So, herewith, I have decided to give the lucky listeners of the Added Time podcast a lucky 15 to follow. Okay. A lucky 15 is four bets, Pat. Well, it's not. It's 15 bets, but it's four horses across 15 bets. And just to make it simple, I've done them all for tomorrow. Okay. Or Tuesday. I'm just wondering if we have to put out some kind of a notice on this to say we are not guaranteeing that any of these horses will come in. You bet at your own risk. Do we have to do all that legally, I wonder? Uh, I, I mean, I'm almost guaranteeing that none of these bleeding horses will win. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I think that is the one fail-safe guarantee I can make. Yeah. And if I'm wrong about any of that, then so much the better. Yes, but, do not put the rent on these horses. Or Yeah, but... but it, my idea is a, a, a 50 cent each way lucky 15. So it's actually 30 bets of 50 cent a piece. A piece. It will cost you 15 euro. Okay, go. Okay. So uh, taking four races on Tuesday of Cheltenham, we have Classical Dream in the first for Willie Mullins and Ruby Walsh. Right. Around five to one. Hardline in the Arkle, much as we will all want Lawler to win. Uh, Hardline will be running against them for Gordon Elliott and Davy Russell. I'm subbing in Lawler for that one. Go you, on. Okay, you do that. Well, you see, Hardline's five to one, uh, Lawler's seven to two. So you, you know, make your own choice. Uh, in the champion hurdle, the champion hurdle is going to be maybe the race of the week. There's Bouverdere going for three in a row 
against Apple's Jade, who's been the best horse all year, and Lorena, who could be anything. Um, I'm going with Apple's Jade. 15 to 8, uh, Jack Kennedy and Gordon Elliott again. These are all Irish horses, and I didn't mean them to all be Irish horses, but there you go. Uh, and in the half five, the last race of the day tomorrow, uh, I'm going with Disco Rama, who's been a, a favourite uh, story of mine because it's trained by Paul Nolan down in Wexford, former Wexford junior hurler, Paul Nolan, uh, who's one of the soundest people I've ever met in sport. And uh, hasn't had a good horse, hasn't had a Cheltenham horse in about 10 years. And he's coming back with this this one, Disco Rama, that uh, came second in the Martin Pipe last year. Has a great chance at 7-1 to one to win uh, tomorrow. So if uh, they all win, Pat, uh, we'll win €889.78. Okay. So there you go. That'll see us through for um, it'll get me through to, day, Well, it? it'll get me through to Friday anyway, yeah. you know, which I'm taking off and going to the pub for. <laughs> <laughs> that is Cheltenham and that's the last we will speak of it uh, the, the, of the unpleasantness um, we have a grand show coming up we are talking to uh, Patrick Madden from our online staff later on who was in the Parc de Prance last week for Man United's insane win over um, uh, PSG. PSG indeed you and I will chat a little hurling uh in a few minutes uh, after we get rid of the rugby lads who are in here Gavin Comiskey is in and Jerry Thorner you are in as well how are you Jerry? Good thanks Mel Gav how are you? Super uh, Another bonus point win but everything back on track yes no Ah yeah to a large degree yeah, yeah. I thought so I don't know if Gav would agree with me. we didn't get a chance to talk with each other actually about the game this is the first time we've spoken about it but Well isn't it great I got you both here at the same time It is um, and uh, I thought for me started from the get go Ireland were just the old, the old adage applies, you know, you've got a really solid set-piece game, you've got really good pack play, the line-out was excellent, scrum was good. The real thing for me was the go-forward momentum of the carriers, you know, Tig making big inroads, Keane making big inroads, James Ryan voracious, CJ Stander voracious, so they were on the front foot a lot, and I thought that uh, there were some beautiful strike plays, some nice tries. The um, very interesting for me was the, don't know what you saw it, Gav, but there was much more aggression in the line speed and defence, they pushed up much harder when they had to defend. And um, Gary Ringrose leading that, I suppose. Yes, yeah, and um, also there was a nice variety to their kicking game, which I hadn't seen so much. It was, I think it was a Joe Schmidt masterclass. They really did their homework in the French with that try that CJ Stanner popped the ball back inside to Keith Earl. They saw that the pillar moves out and leaves that hole. And, and see where Keith was. He yeah, went to the front, front of the line, line out, so yeah. he looked like he was going into the mall, so the yeah. winger wouldn't attract him. Yeah. So yeah, it was just it was like a little piece of paper he wrote down and handed it to CJ Stanner and Keith Earl. <laughs> if you do this, you will score a try. <laughs> just do it any time you want in the this, game. And this, this was the genius at work up in the stands you know what I mean and the other thing for me as well last thing I'd say before I pass on to Gav I just thought Gav that the uh, the kicking game there's more variety the kicking game again they took a leaf out of the English manual at Twickenham against the French right from the word go they move the ball wide to Gary Greenrose he delayed his kick it brings when you move it into the wider channels it brings the defenders up you can find more space in the backfield he got space in the backfield from Thomas Ramos's return kick this gave Larmer the time and space to then put the ball in behind as well that earned the first line out. That earned the first try. And later France in the game, never escaped. Then yeah. no. And later in the game, they used Ringrose in that wider channel. His kicking game again. They used Earls once for a chip through. So they varied the point of the kicking and found grass in behind. So I thought overall, the only thing I'd be complaining about, not least as I backed them at minus thirteen, mm-hmm. was they didn't win by forty or fifty points, which they should have done. And late in those two late tries. But overall, you'd say job well done, wouldn't you? It was like uh, the pitch looked like a sinking ship because it was like steeped uh, all the way down, sliding all the way down into that old Lansdowne Road Pavilion corner. And France just, 
they couldn't get the basics right to like, literally exit their own 22. There was a little bit of a wind and it made DuPont look like he was an uncertain scrum half. It wasn't his fault. It was the, the pack just didn't protect him, didn't allow him to get out. And because of it, we got to see that magical James Ryan tackle on his, on his knees. Yeah, you need, you need to actually explain what happened there because I saw it happen in real time and I thought assumed that James Ryan slipped as he went to close down so the So the way they're coaching now big players tackling little players to avoid getting sent off or a yellow card under new rules is you tackle under the ball. Forget about this nipple height or armpit or anything like that. You tackle under the ball. So the only way if you're six foot seven or six foot eight that you can tackle a five foot nine scrum half under the ball is to drop to your knees. So as DuPont was in the dead ball area and tried to get out Ryan was right in front of him and he goes I'm going to smash him but if I smash him, I'm going off the pitch. So he literally went, fell onto his knees and just and let DuPont run into him and just trust, trusted his own upper body strength. I, cool. I stress people should go and find this clip on, on Twitter. It's it is super absolutely human incredible. Stuff, isn't it? Like, I, first of all, I don't know how you can keep what kind of core strength you have to have to be able to drop to your knees got a little bit of it. and smash a guy. <laughs> I think he does. He's yeah. been working on it you know for what? a while. I, I was to thinking... have the, the foresight, to, to, the mind to think of it in that split second because he did it in a split second in, in last night when I was thinking well, what's the difference this week to all the other weeks in the Six Nations and it's to me it was uh, James Ryan and Gary Ringrose next year Ireland are going to need a new leadership core Rory Best admitted after the game because yeah that's it I'm gone and Joe Schmidt's gone and Andy Farrell's going to have to pick a captain probably Peter Mandy possibly Johnny Sexton but in 2020, those two mightn't be fit and ready after the World Cup if it goes to plan. You can nearly bet the house that those two will be injured by the time the Six Nations rolls around. So James Ryan, he's captained all the way through. And Gary Ringrose has grown steadily. O'Gara name-checked it when he went on tour a couple of summers ago. He goes, that guy's a leader. Uh, in the huddle before the game, Ringrose was barking orders. So between the two of them, they are the... Uh, I feel like they're, the, they're already the leadership core, the next kind of wave of it. And their performances from each of them, like Ringrose has denied a try by again, a lovely little tackle by DuPont, but to catch that ball and to go over the way he did, the two of them, their performances were just other level. Like Chris Farrell did nothing wrong when he's playing centre for Ireland. Ulton uh, Delan probably had one of the games of his life in Rome, made about 20 tackles, and it's just not comparable. Their performances, when you take Farrell out, Ringrose back in, Delan out, James Ryan back in, and Ireland are a different team. They are the world-class team that we know about. Jerry, when we were talking about this last week, one of the last things we said was... Um, wouldn't it be great now if Ireland beat this France team the way they're going, a rejuvenated France team? And yet it doesn't really feel like that because France were, they were just so poor in that first half yesterday. Yeah, I, I, I always felt, I said it here last week, that you know they had to win that game against Scotland because they had, there was a firing squad waiting for them when they came off the pitch and a guillotine if they didn't win that game. It was a very emotional one-off Which is first, the guillotine or the firing squad? I think they have the guillotine left, left over on the side in case the <laughs> In case the shooters are drunk. <laughs> but they had, to, called they, they had to win that game, you know. And Scotland were pretty poor and under strength. So it was a little bit of a one-off. I always worried, I, I always doubted whether they could reproduce that scale of a performance. And I did say I thought that, you know, Ireland would do unto France what Leinster did to Toulouse. And it pretty much exactly worked out that because Ireland play a lot like Leinster and France are trying to play like Toulouse. Um, and they were just blown away in the contact area. Apart from Bastro and a few others, actually, Bastro got a couple of poaches and Felix Lambie, I think, made 28 tackles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ituria yeah. made 24. Like, there were some brave hombres there, including Dupont. 205 tackles and they missed 33. Mm. So it was just, they just squeezed. Schmidt said it was the most satisfying 40 minutes he's ever had in six years as Ireland coach. They, they squeezed. Most, they said the most dominant. Don't think yeah. you've seen such dominance like yeah. that. They just squeezed the living daylights out of yeah. them, you know. So, um, just take them through multiple phases and just deny them the ball and play territory and yeah and it, and it, and it worked to a treat. I mean, they really should have won by more, 
possibly. Mm. That's the only thing. They'll re- regret an overthrow, the, the couple of near misses, not converting that scrum pressure um, in the fourth quarter when France were down to seven men, but and then letting in the two late tries. But it served a purpose in that Joe Schmidt was able to call ashore a lot of his front liners with the 20 minutes to go with a six-day turnaround, which was important. But the Welsh defence won't be nearly as easy to penetrate as the, as the French. Yeah, defense. it's a sad day for French rugby when Ireland, who never take their halfbacks off early, are taking them off with like over an hour or with a half an hour, hour to go. Played. Yeah. Yeah, it's They're just not nearly as well coached aside. And they I won't be until they get a know, new coaching ticket. Joe keeps mentioning the Scots all this week. He kept mentioning the Scots. And I was like, why is he going on? Because he was like, Gregor Townsend is a cracking team there. Just, just been unlucky. And it just dawned on me this morning. Of course, he's thinking about the World Cup. And he's pretty much said it last week. He goes, um, this is, I've never treated the Six Nations like this before. It's kind of a trial run and all that. He, he's bigging up the Scots every chance he gets when they do not deserve to be picked <laughs> up, even slightly. <laughs> They're going to get sorted out by England. They're in Scotland have really regressed, I think, of all the teams when we, when we stand away from the Six Nations now they're 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 not getting anywhere close to the results they should be they thought they would be getting at this stage we we shouldn't be worrying about them come the World Cup but Joe being the ever the planner is kind of name checking them every chance he gets as a great team they, one thing I would say in their defence Gavin is they've been decimated by injuries and where again that was a brutal match and it will be another brutal match in the Principality Stadium this Saturday I fear the, the provinces might pay the cost for this this game next weekend oh yeah Ulster might actually profit from this <laughs> if, but yeah if Leinster will lose a good few players next weekend I've, I've no doubt about it. Um, um, Wales will be. Um, you, we've we've been there before. Remember the 05 game when they're going for a Grand Slam. Yeah, Wales yeah. going for a Grand Slam in Cardiff. Uh, Whoa! And they, and also it's Joe Schmidt's bogey place. He's never won a match there as Ireland coach. Um, so it's it's that's two defeats. <coughs> let's be keeping in perspective. It's only two defeats. <laughs> two defeats. Still it's his worst it's, record because yeah, they've yeah, drawn yeah, in yeah, Dublin. Yeah. Wales have drawn with a Joe Schmidt team in Dublin and it, two journeys to Cardiff, two defeats. So and it is two it home is wins as well. So it's two one two. I'm sure he's aware of it. It's a fascinating subplot the Warren Gatland Joe Schmidt team because it's both their last Six Nations games um, after twelve and six year ten years and. Uh, you know, it would be interesting to see what they say during the week. I mean, I think already Joe Schmidt's going to highlight the fact that Wales were fortunate not to concede a yellow card, which certainly Gregor Townsend felt with that succession of penalties uh, on their in their 22. But um, it's going to be very interesting to see how they both go about this game. Wales have been problematic for Ireland. He, Joe Schmidt admitted it afterwards, very problematic for them. They love to. They'll just sit and def- they'll do what the French did, but better. They'll sit yeah. and defend all day. They, they want to do that. They'll yeah. happily give Ireland the ball, I think. I watched, I tracked Jordan Larmer for the uh, the game yesterday because as soon as Rob Carney was pulled out, I was like, and the rain and the sleet and the snow were coming in, I was like, going, oh, this is the worst nightmare for a 21-year-old fullback. And then just as the warm-up ended, the sun came out. Mm. I was like, you lucky, lucky boy. And he had a fine game, but... Only tested once in the air yeah. and didn't pass that test. Uh, yeah, Penno, Penno got in ahead of him. Yeah. Yeah, France probably should have scored a try from that. That's the thing, so it has to be... Um, Dan Bigger would be just rubbing his hands and Liam Williams. Rob Carney, if he trains Tuesday, as is expected, Rob back. Carney plays 15. Yeah. Gav, because you mentioned Jordan Larmour there, I'm curious about something. His early kick to the corner that eventually led to Rory Best try, it kind of set the, the, the tone for the game. But he made that kick. Was it actually part of a game plan, do you think? For what I'm basically asking is, if Rob Kearney was playing and Rob Kearney had been throwing that ball by Sexton, would he have kicked that ball? I think um, he would have probably ran it back or gone up into the air because I just haven't seen that that sort of a kick in Rob's arsenal that much over the years. But the, see, the kicking game works so well. Like Ringrose was really effective with the boot as well. Was it a plan or yeah. was it off the cuff? Was it No, no, they're, they're instructed to do it. Like Jordan Larmer... Didn't know that kicking wasn't part of his DNA until Joe Schmidt got hold of him. Now, granted, he got hold of him when he was like a teenager, so he, he was like, No, no, this is how you do it. Like, I, Larmer was very interesting at one stage. He did this kind of tap dancing escape from two French players, and it was just his, you know, his wonderful little cameos that he did in the game. 
and then he passed the ball and I was, I was still watching him and what he did was then and this is why Joe Schmidt keeps going back to him and why he'll be on the bench in Cardiff or involved is he tracked the man and rooked and got in under and he knows how to rook now perfectly he got in under Bastro and secured ball for Ireland so it's, it's not the magical razzle dazzle we see from this kid who is just ridiculously talented from the gods uh, it's not that it's the little things he does that Schmidt has drilled into him and that's why he sees off the Conways of this world on the bench consistently. It, it was right from the kickoff, Pat. Like, I mean, it was quite deliberate because normally Ireland would exit from maybe a phase or two and then a box kick from Conor Murray or... But this one went straight from... Well, I think the second recycle from the kickoff, they went... Uh, there was a screen, the three pod, three forwards in the pod, went behind them to Sexton, onto Aki, out wide to Gary Ringrose. He, he's time then to run three or four metres with the ball. This is all designed to make the French um, backfield come forward in advance because it looks like Arne are going to run the ball out from the 22. This gives him the space to kick the ball in behind him. And it was that... It was a lovely kick, kick though. It was a lovely it? kick by Ringrose. And it was that kick that in turn meant when from Ramos had to return, kick the ball back to Ireland, Larmer then had space himself to run back towards the halfway line and then pick out his spot in behind Damien Penno to force the line out. So... They work Ringrose into space later for another kick. They work Keith Earls in off his wing, put a left-footed grubber through. It was a time when Dupont was tackled behind his line by Ringrose. Ringrose, um, Stockdale and Larmer both overtake three re- retreating French players who just aren't in the most interest in chasing mm. back. They were gone by then. And poor old Dupont has a, a posse of green chased him down his own in-goal area because he was the one player who was willing to work back. But um, it was definitely a deliberate tactic They'd seen what England had done to uh, France and Twickenham and, and went after them similarly. It was, a, it was a little bit of a variety in their kicking game we hadn't seen before, I thought. I liked, I liked what Schmidt said, though, about just going back to Larmer. He goes, on the morning of the game, Rob's uh, calf had tightened up and he goes, I turn around and he goes, yeah, okay, young fella, 15 jerseys yours. And he goes, that Jordan rubbed his hands together and yeah, I'm yeah, delighted. Yeah, yeah. And he, like, he, Schmidt was genuinely going, what, do you, what can you do? When you've got, you got a kid like this, you just got to let him go out. But at the same time, then he adds in, he goes, but his positioning as a fullback still has a lot to learn, <laughs> which was a clear message going, you'll be wearing number 23 in Cardiff, sorry. Gav, let's do a bit of uh, Johnny and Connor watch. How, how are they getting on? I read, did I read somewhere Murray, Murray had one box kick all day. Like, that, that seems uh, like when, you pin, when you spend the, the day in the opposition 22, yeah, you know, you need, no to, need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was, yeah, there was a wind element and all that. He's actually, and it was, it was, yeah, it was okay, but it was, they were fine. It wasn't there, they didn't need to do much. Like, they were gone. On fifty nine minutes, sixty minutes, the job done. Um, it was everyone, everything around him was clicking along and going to plan. But Sexton had a very good game. I thought all the same, very good. And I thought Murray was better again. Conor Murray was better again. It was it was good to see him really relishing the physical stuff. He was shooting up at the line a couple of times, looking to make hits. Um, and I thought his decision making at the base was very good. And Sexton was class, you know. Again, um, there's a theory about that. You know, maybe he's lost a bit of ex- acceleration. It didn't look that for his try. Sweetly executed as well. Huge like, biting in though. Like yeah. it was just poor defence. It was, but like it was the, the three decoy runners all ran their lines perfectly as well. Lovely hands from Ringrose, and I thought, yeah, Johnny showed a nice turn of foot for his try. I watched it back late last night, and it was uh, Carty looked good. Cooney got a really valuable twenty minutes, I think, mm-hmm. for him. Um, but uh, Jack Carty doesn't look like he was phased at all. No, two lovely little line kicks. Yeah. So yeah. that was probably one of the most beneficial things mm-hmm. from Ireland's perspective. I was wondering something watching the Keith Earls try yesterday. Keith Earls came to the front of the line out and you did find yourself going, well, he's hardly going to take this. And then they worked the move brilliantly and he goes straight over. Is that not wasting a brilliant move to secure a fourth try in a game against France that you've 
that you've won looking backwards. No, because, should that not have been kept for next no, Saturday? No, basically? there's two reasons for that. One, they needed the bonus point, and for two, Schmidt has like a thousand of those moves. Okay, he's there's got plenty like a, more where they came from. Got a big notebook of them, and we've seen, and it's always a variation of the same thing. You show the opposition something, they think that you're going to do it, and then you do something else. It's like he just plays poker all the time, so he can. He's got like a book of them. For all the criticism of Ireland's rugby this season, it's probably safe to say they've come up with the best strike plays and first phase tries of any team in the competition. You know, they've actually been the most creative strike players. I can't think of any other team that's come close. Yeah, we're going to win the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, be, before that... <laughs> that was quantum leap, Gav. What's... Um, <laughs> let's talk about next next weekend. Uh, are we going... We're essentially going to, to bust a grand slam. Like, win, winning the actual tournament is, is too much to ask at this stage. We, we need Scotland to beat England. The way points difference yeah. and the bonus points have panned out, we basically need Scotland to beat England after Ireland beat Wales, which looks highly unlikely. Yeah, and, like, um, and who cares? Ruining a grand slam is more grand, fun. Ruining a grand slam is something that and we've it's also, done. It's done, Schmidt's it, bogey it team. It's his bogey <laughs> venue. It's yeah. the one place he's never won as a, as Ireland coach. So like, there's a lot of... that. All that stuff matters to these, this, this team and these players. And it's just a very, very difficult place to go and win. It would be an astonishing atmosphere. It'll be carnage in the streets. And it's I'm like Carnival in game. Rio, yeah, except yeah, they speak, yeah. they're, all, they're all drunk and, and Welsh. It's it's crazy town. Like They all come in. And they, when a Grand Slam in Cardiff is, is There'll great. There'll be an it's extra 30, 40, 50,000 people just come into Cardiff for the day. Mm. Won't even have tickets. Mm. It will be something else. And uh, yeah, the atmosphere would be amazing. And... Um, Gav's right. Like I think, I think back to last November and Wales beat Australia nine six. It was one of the most eye catching results of the whole November window for me. How can you win an international scoring nine points when you've got a great defence? And um, the one thing the Welsh have shown in this tournament in patches, and certainly in the second half against Scotland, they've just got a phenomenal defence. Um, why has the why has the the balance of power changed there? But I don't think are, it has. Are, but Ireland going to Cardiff. Ireland going to Cardiff ten years ago. They had a good record for for a good decade there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as Wales had here. Yeah, so it's but, always uh, been a bit of a weird one, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's an odd one for for to be Schmidt's bogey team. It, yeah, or it's, bogey venue. But it's it's a strange narrative. It's just it's a special place to go. It's a strange narrative. Like sixty minutes into the England Wales game, or fifty minutes into that game, I was still there. England are going to win this. They're going to win the Grand Slam. It's all set up, and then the, the the little things change slowly but surely, and Wales just well, Dan Binger changed everything to be honest, and with his crossfield kicks. Um, and Liam Williams' performance. It's the little things like that. Once they get, God, it's such a cliche, but once they get the crowd involved in their performance, it is very difficult to beat them there. They're very good at holding a lead, as we saw against Scotland, and they're probably the best comeback team around as well. When you think the way they came back against England, they were 10-3 defending on their own line just at half-time. That was the turning point for me. They kept England out. I actually was watching that game in a bar in Rome, Gav, with Dan Sheridan, the photographer, and Dan saying, are England going to win this? And I said, no, Wales going to win this. Wales going to keep coming back at them. And as well as the cross-kicking, the other thing they adapted for the English defensive system was their pick-and-go. Their pick-and-go, they dragged England through those 34 phases for the Corrie Hill try. I mean, it was it was expertly planned by Gatland and Edwards and Howley and, and the Welsh think tank. And when you think, Gavin, these are players that are coming from regional sides who just hardly fire a shot in Europe compared they to the care Irish about it, that jersey, yeah. And, you know, they, they pull them together and they add up way more to the sum of the individual parts. And this is, a, he's going for his third Grand Slam, Gatlin. But in this era of Welsh rugby, you'd fear for Wales when Gatlin moves on. And the, and the mess especially going with the on. undercarriage there, yes. of what's going on yeah, yeah, yeah you really would fear of them but right now they're, they're also the other thing about them is they're a very good tournament side they get great momentum As he's, I mean Gatlin said it before it started if we win in France we'll win the whole thing and they came back from 16-0 down the first game got their great escape and here they are going for a Grand Slam it's the toughest time to play, face Wales when they're going for a Grand Slam on home soil but that makes it I think, I think Joe Schmidt would be quietly happy about that I think Ireland are going to win do you? 
I'm using logic. I'm not using the crowd <laughs> and and all the um, all the things that come around a Cardiff weekend like this. I'm using the basics of when we strip it all back. I think England are a better team than Wales. I think Ireland are a better team than Wales. Mm. But Wales beat England, so and they're well capable of beating Ireland at home as well on a one-off day going for Grand Slam. Push came to shove. Yes, I think that Ireland are probably a slightly better team. Um, Sexton and a few guys have lost too many games there that they feel like they shouldn't have lost. You yeah. know what I mean? That kind of a thing. And they, um, like whatever, the team is going to be very similar, the Ireland team, mm-hmm. I'd imagine. Yeah. Except with fullback will change. Um, and well, I presume all the bodies. Van der Flyer's gone, I think. So Yeah, what, I mean, to see what he does there in the back row. Is Sean O'Brien. Mm. If Sean O'Brien's Shawnee not brought back. back in, he's really put out in the cold. Yes, he's he really is. in trouble if yes. he doesn't get brought back in. I presume that they sent him away last week just to get him ready for this game. And the Tyg Byrne thing was interesting. I really thought he deserved to come back in, but he was hurt. He was sore last week. So you put those two guys back into your mix and I just, I don't see how Ireland get beaten. Oh, I can see how they could get beaten. <laughs> <laughs> Not with those two guys coming back in. I think the element that Tyg Byrne and Sean O'Brien had to, uh, I said this last week. Actually, well. You did say this last yeah, week. It, it, you put those back in and we're, we've too much for them. Well, 2.45 on Saturday. Uh, it'll be the place to be and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week to see how it all went. Thanks Alrighty. very much. We had some hurling at the weekend and we completed the lineup for the National League quarterfinals. Yeah. The, which will happen this weekend. Which will happen this weekend. Mm. Wexford are going to play Galway with Galway at home. Clare playing Waterford. It's going to be a coin toss for the home venue there. Mm-hmm. And Tipperary are going to play Dublin with Tipperary at home. Mm. You were for your sins in Wexford Park yesterday. Yes, what what sins did I commit to, to deserve? I don't know. <laughs> There's a great picture is... in the Times today of... Yeah. Uh, a Wexford player swinging on a ball and taking a lot of snow with him as he as he's swinging. It's a spectacular it's picture. Liam Oak McGovern. I think it was for his point, actually. Um, yeah, it was horrific yesterday. Like it really, really was awful. Wexford won one nineteen to one twelve. I'll get in. They did. They did. They were five points down at half time. Uh, they were eight points down midway through the first half um, and turned it around. Actually, at half time, I kind of thought. The wind was blowing more or less straight down the pitch and I kind of thought it was about a five-point win. But uh, actually, as you were saying uh, before we started there, that if you look around between it, the Waterford game and the Carlow game, it actually was a 10-point win across the board, really. Um, and Kilkenny were a bit kind of drab in the first half. They 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 allowed Wexford back into it a little bit Um and as soon, actually, as Wexford got the first and second point of the second half, it wasn't really in doubt. You kind of knew that they were going to get on a roll. But they, God almighty, the weather was appalling. Like, like Owen Murphy is the Kilkenny goalkeeper, probably the sweetest striker among the top three or four sweetest strikers in the country. Couldn't get a puck out past his 45. Wow. Past the 45, not the 65. Like, he was giving it everything. And he was just getting held up in the wind and going a mile in the air and dropping right down. Like like Rory McIlroy hitting a, a, an eight iron onto the green, like and plonking straight on the ground, and so uh, yeah, Wexford just sort of ate them alive in the second half. Given um, the breeze was so strong, why did Kilkenny allow Wexford to take short puckouts in the first? Half? I couldn't, could not fathom it. I couldn't fathom it. Um, I couldn't fathom why they were so passive on the line, um, because it was. It was clear. Now, it was so clear. They got a couple of... What they were doing was they were allowing Mark Fanning to give a short ball to uh, Darren Byrne, the Wexford fullback. Uh, clear tactic by Davy Fitzgerald. He talked about it afterwards. Um, and 
Byrne, who's a young player, uh, was suddenly, you know, saddled with the responsibility of coming out with it and working out what to do with it. Now, twice he fouled the ball coming out. Once he just caught it three times, another time he just, like, ran, like, like Jordan Larmour trying to get through the uh, Kilkenny press. Uh, and another time, uh, the one time Mark Fanning actually did puck it out, like he, uh, Kilkenny just caught it and gave it to Walter Walsh and Walter scored a point. So you could say that it was working for Kilkenny, but Kilkenny had scored an early goal. They had gone 1-1 to no score up. I kind of thought, lads, push away up. Let's let, just make Kilkenny or Wexford completely miserable, completely, you know, panicky about trying to get out of their own half. When they didn't do that, um, I, I thought it allowed Kil- uh, Wexford to get a bit of a foothold. Like, OK, Byrne gave away, uh, Darren Byrne gave away those two frees, which were handy frees that gave away two points. Fair enough. But the next one, he took and he got out and he got a hand. He drew the cover and got a hand pass off and they got up the pitch. And once he, when he was able to do that two times, three times, you were kind of going, why are they not swarming up here? Why are they? And you're just kind of thinking, this is really, again, this is just not championship stuff. Like, this is just not. Um, this is your pet peeve about this entire hurling league, isn't it? Well, I just have been to, to, to I think, three games, four games and... From every game, I've come away with an example of something that just wouldn't happen in the summer. You know, that is just, just too kind of, too kind of off the coffee or too kind of, too loose to to happen in the summer. Yeah, and, why didn't uh, Kilkenny stand on that after it happened twice? Yeah, because it's like when, when Wexford had and now Wexford won the toss and decided to play against the wind in the first half, mm. which I which Davy always does. I, I didn't know, but which Davy always does. And you could see them coming back out and like they were on it and they were coming out and they bait up on the Kilkenny puck out and gave Owen Murphy uh, like four rows of three to aim at. Uh, and how are you going to get the ball out there? And like they just penned Kilkenny back into their own half. So yeah, look, it's... It was winter hurling, really monsoon, sleet monsoon winter hurling. But um, it was, yeah, Kilkenny, like, Kilkenny were defending league champions up until the 75th minute yesterday. Uh, they were not they were not fighting to keep their crown at any stage. Yeah, I think hurling in, in the rain is a skill and hurling in snow is just a trial. Like yeah. your, your hand on a stick, uh, that's, that's cold, it's nearly impossible. Yeah, like, like they were... They, there was a lot of scuffles early on and partly I think it was as much for players to warm themselves up. Like they were genu- genuinely all horsing into these scuffles and the ref was kind of letting them at it. So, it, you know, for uh, as much to get their body heat up as anything. <laughs> for, um, for people who don't know, there's actually a relegation playoff even though there's no relegation yeah. actually happening this year. Uh, Connor Delaney was sent off late for Kilkenny. Indeed he was. And... Equally so, Seamus Harndy was sent off uh, late, or actually with 15 minutes to go in the Tipperary game. And Cork and Kilkenny are going to be in the uh, relegation playoff that has no relegation. Mm. You had an amusing... Brian Cody had an interesting take on this. So, um, like, now partly this is conspiracy theory stuff, to a certain extent, but it is and it isn't at the same time. So, 
this relegation game is pointless. Everybody knows it's pointless. Um, and Cody was saying afterwards that they had had communications from HQ during the week, uh, gauging their attitude to if you are in, the, if you come either bottom or second bottom, and the other team is amenable. Uh, would you be up for just a coin toss? Because all this is to do is to decide who comes fifth, who comes sixth for the redrawing of the leagues next year. Um, and Cody said, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, he, he actually described it as a futile game. Uh, it was then pointed out to him that Conor Delaney's uh, red card will now carry over to the championship. He'll be suspended for the first game of the championship. And that Seamus Harnady uh, ditto for, for Cork. Uh, and he had a smile a mile wide and kind of went, right, uh, are you sure that's not for the leagues next year? No, no, that's for the championship. Right, right. Um, yeah, th that game might, yeah, maybe, sure, maybe we'll play it after all. And when we all kind of burst out laughing, because everybody knew what the subtext is here, that Cork can play, Kilkenny can play, the two lads will be back for championship. Um, he, he very quickly kind of went, Ah, look, no, 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 no. Like, you know, we wouldn't be playing a game just to, to get that. Look, we, we'll be going wherever we're sent to go. And blah. And he went, he smacked straight back into Cody mode. But there was a smile a mile wide when he kind of realised, all right. I, now, and I was on to, uh, to GA last night going, here, look, there's a bit of chat going around that, that this game might not be played, that it might be a coin toss. And the text I got back from, from my guy in the fixtures office was... Uh, we expect the game to be played, Maliki. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe representations have been made from from Kilkenny and from Cork that, uh, yeah, sure, we might play that whole game after all. <laughs> yeah, Cork had fancy having Seamus Harnady back for the first round well, of the championship and, as well. And to be fair, Kilkenny would Kilkenny. You know, it looks like they have they have their full back here. You know, it was Hugh Lawler for the first two rounds of the league, but so far, it looks like Conor Delaney has settled in here. It has freed Porrick Walsh to play in midfield and further forward. Like, at certain points yesterday, um, oddly indeed, when Kilkenny were struggling to get out of their own half, Conor Delaney, or Porrick Walsh was actually standing up at full forward for like five minutes, which was, seemed very odd. Um, but he is playing further out the field. He is a dynamic force in there whenever he gets on the ball. Um, yeah, um, Kilkenny want Conor Delaney playing in the first round of the Leinster Championship. There is no doubt about that. <laughs> That's when the shadow boxing will end. Indeed, yeah. indeed, it will end long before then. But yes, that is the that is the hurling league. The quarterfinals will be on. The three remaining quarterfinals will be on next weekend. Obviously, Limerick uh, hockey leash on on Saturday night. So uh, yeah, we'll see how they go. And I expect actually, I expect it to kick into gear a fair bit now. Like these games have to be played. Like nobody, one way or the other. If you get to a league final, you're still you still are going to have six weeks off before the championship. So these games are going to ramp up a bit. Hopefully, the bleeding weather is going to get a bit warmer and a bit less windy and a bit less <laughs> snowy. Uh, so these games will kick into gear I I would imagine like Wexford Galway next weekend I know it's in Salt Hill hopefully there isn't that big a wind but that's going to be a right game you yeah. would imagine that would be a right game I'd expect Tip to Hockey Dublin um, and 
like Christ, the other one, Clare Waterford, you know, that's a serious game. So you would imagine that these games take on a bit of significance now and, and they get they get better than, the, than I have had to endure so far. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let, let's see what happens going forward from here. We'll see if they, they finally meet, reach, meet your high standards. <laughs> okay. You're listening to the Irish Times. And so, Pat, like a, like a guy in Vegas at the craps table, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's luck ran out yesterday. It did a bit, and actually they played quite well. And yeah. it was, there was, genuinely his luck was against him yesterday. Yeah. For the first time nearly since he's been in charge. Yeah, which can happen in sport. Yeah, we've swings seen and this. roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts and all that. Uh, it uh, is at the end, though, of an extraordinary week for Man United. And uh, we have Patrick Madden in studio with us from our online staff, who was in Paris last week. Morning. Um, it was one of those extraordinary television events, um, especially with you know the tension of VAR and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, to be there in the ground though last uh, last Wednesday must have been just as extraordinary. It was. It was. It was very surreal as a as a package as an experience. They scored a very improbable goal at the start, which had people wondering. You know, Maybe there's a chance here. And then proceeded to get absolutely hammered for the next half an hour. Yeah. Eric Bayer got ran ragged at right back. Did that look as bad in the stadium as it did on, on TV? Oh, just completely, yeah. It was like the pitch was wonky and everything was <laughs> flooding towards that, you know, the United's right-hand side. And, yeah, he had twisted blood by the end. I think it was uh, Jan Bernat, the mm. PSG left-back. But uh, PSG only managed to score one. And out of nowhere, Buffon spilled that, that Rashford shot. And at 2-1 at half-time, there's just this sneaking feeling that the deeper United can take it, then there's always going to be a chance. There's mm-hmm. always one chance. And it just got later and later. There was, um, was it Di Maria. Mm. Brilliant finish. Looked like that was that would have been curtains. And then the flag went up and, you know, and it's lashing rain, but people look around thinking, maybe there's a chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just goes deeper and deeper. I mean, the United players were absolutely dead on their feet by this stage for you know, Lukaku for example um, having you know run himself into the ground he was empty and then Solskjaer brought on the two kids yeah on one hand this was kind of you know it's quite symbolic of the change and of Solskjaer's tenure but you know you've mm. got Chung and Mason Greenwood you know Greenwood shirt number 54 for example um, but it was actually a really clever tactical tweak at the same time because Greenwood then started running behind PSG again in a way which Lukaku couldn't do anymore and as a result, PSG dropped. United were able to play slightly higher up the pitch. And then Dallo, the Portuguese right back, he had that shot. Um, and I, the instant reaction was the referee had overturned a corner for a goal kick. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're kind of clinging on to have United got, got this one last chance from a corner. Did you think it was a corner? I say I thought it was going to be a goal kick. Yeah. And then the, the the screens came up in kind of a corner of the ground to say it's a VAR penalty review. And people are looking at each other and what's going on here? And then the referee obviously goes off towards the touchline. And you've never seen this before. In a, you've seen it on the telly, mm. but kind of whilst you're there at the ground. And again, it was surreal. And everyone's looking at each other thinking, is he going to give this? Is he going <laughs> to give this? And the referee made, you know, quite a song and dance about it, actually. He kind of... 
his dramatic little run back onto the pitch and you just you could tell he was going to point to the spot and then it was kind of uh, the tension over whether Rashford would actually score it or not there was some brilliant PSG shithousery as yeah, they call yeah, it yeah. hanging in around they, yeah. they did everything they could I particularly enjoyed Fred it was I think who went in and started thumping guys back yeah, from yeah. Rashford it was and quite I, I think that kind of sums up the night because you had these players like Fred and Pereira um, at Tomney who you know they were kind of completely lost and they had been for a while had been figures of fun yeah and you know completely the on the periphery and the fact that it was it was them as opposed to the first team who you know did it last Wednesday um, and yeah so Fred I think it was Preedy uh, Preedy's the mm. in fact it was Fred who was there to grab him by the scruff of the neck and let Rashford take the penalty mm. it was kind of say it was just symbolic of just how ridiculous the whole night was, basically. Because that's what it was. It was ridiculous. Mm. Nearly everything about it was ridiculous. Uh, like, two things that that I, I saw afterwards that I didn't know at the time. Uh, one thing is, um, I was absolutely astonished to find that Romelu Lukaku is 25. <laughs> I, he, like, genuinely, I thought he was running around like a, like a veteran guy who was maybe 31 or something like that. Like, I can't, couldn't get over the fact that that's all he is. And also, it was Rashford's first ever penalty for United. That That's somehow amazing to me. You, for a guy who takes all the frees, uh, the, the, you know, the edge of the box free kicks, um, and has scored so many goals, that that's his first ever penalty that he took for them. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, Lukaku's inside the top 10 Premier League goal scorers mm. now, isn't he? So, you know, he's kind of, would have been about 17, 18 when he was free at Chelsea and then had amazing. his loan at West Brom. And it just showed the stones on Rashford. Also, Rashford wasn't fully fit. Mm. You could tell that, I mean, obviously he got that knock against Liverpool, played on. But um, you could tell he was carrying himself and he wasn't able to run the lines in the way he usually did. So, I mean, in the circumstances. Um, and again, he, he Rashford almost presented himself as the elder statesman at the end. I know, yeah. And you forget that, you know. <laughs> he's 20. Yeah, he's 21, 21. as a kid. So. <laughs> the whole thing, the, the sort of, the, the pure story of it, um, obviously drives this this thing now, and we all presume this is Solskjaer's job now. Is that a good thing? Do you think? Definitely. I think if you look at it, it just in terms of numbers, he's been in charge for eighteen matches. They've won fourteen, drawn two, lost two, and one of those defeats was at home to PSG, and they then instantly bounced back from it and ended up qualifying. Mm. If it had been Pochettino who'd have taken over after Mourinho, and that they were his numbers, mm. then there wouldn't be any doubt about it. Yeah. It's almost the fact that people are second-guessing it because they're looking for an angle which says this is only because it's Solskjaer and he's a club legend and he's relying on luck mm. and it's a lot of, you know, patting people on backs. But actually, you know, the say the statistics are there which say he's doing a brilliant job. But at the same time, he then offers something which nobody else can do. So, you know, the fact that he is a club legend, the fact that he's a... Actually, just a really nice bloke, but mm. he's got a bit of steel about him at the mm. same time. It's not just him either. You know, you've got Carrick and you've got Mike Feeling, mm. Ewan McKenna, uh, Mark Dempsey. Kieran McKenna, please, God, let us not say that Ewan McKenna is the uh, assistant manager Sorry, Kieran. Of, of Manchester That would be United. a turn up for the books. That would be a turn up for the books. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> it's quite rough, right? <laughs> Scratch that bit. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, how much of. Uh, of the positive effect of Solskjaer is coming about purely because he's almost like a, the polar opposite of Mourinho. He's all, he's like Bez. He's the good vibes man. And he's he's kind of lifted the club in that way. 
Isn't that part of what's where the bounce is coming from, the fact that he's the anti-Mourinho? There's definitely a lot to be said for that, but, you know, so, I mean, the last weeks of Mourinho's tenure, I mean, that game at, at Anfield, 16th of December, 17th of December, was miserable. And, you know, I remember in that game, United went in one all at half-time, somehow, mm. having been absolutely bombarded and Jesse Lingard managed to bundle one in at the back post and there's, all of a sudden there's a game. Yet, you know, in that second half, Mourinho decided to shut up shot. He, he sat and sulked on the touchline. He wasn't proactive. And, you know, the, what happened afterwards was inevitable. So, and then, you know, a lot of these players, take Luke Shaw, for example, who's been absolutely outstanding um, since... And actually, he was doing all right before Mourinho left. But, um, you know, there is a lot to be said for kind of the, the arm around the shoulders approach as opposed to the... Mm. You know, people being completely outcast. For example, I mean, Andres Pereira made a really bad mistake against Burnley. Um, I think there's six, seven games in Southgate's tenure and they drew to all. But he started in Paris, you know, mm. whereas under the previous regime, if he'd have made a mistake like that, he would have been, you know, playing with his sticks. China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's, but, yeah, there is a, there's a really counterintuitive way of looking at it. Uh, and I, I'm afraid I think this is the way that I look at it, that... As you cite his numbers there, his numbers are, are, are actually too good, I think, to give him the job or, or to be the basis for giving him the job. Do you know what I mean? That this this is completely unsustainable. Like, like as we say yesterday, they played probably better yesterday than they have in some of the games that, that, that they won and that yet they lost 2-0. Um, that Pochettino looks a safer bet yeah. in, the, in the longer run. Um, and yet, as you say, he doesn't have the the intangible things that that Solskjaer can bring. So I don't know. I, I think it's a really interesting. One. Like I, I think this is kind of moot because it is going to happen. It is going to be Solskjaer's gig. Like, but well, I mean, but you, I think they could be making a mistake. They, they quite conceivably uh, lose to Wolverhampton in the FA Cup on mm. Saturday night. Um, you know, get a dud draw in the European Cup. Uh, or you know, even get knocked out by City in the European Cup and end up finishing fifty six. Yeah. Then you know you, you you look and you say as a return, but it's almost I think the, the it, it's almost an impossible uh, job to do now to take over from Solskjaer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because even though <laughs> there just is an element of that already, over yeah. a three month period, yeah. you know, there isn't anybody unless you know. Bar Ferguson coming back out of retirement, <laughs> there isn't anyone who would be able to f- fulfill that role and kind of, you know, put that in for supporters. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you, and the other thing is you have to, to judge him on not necessarily his brilliant start, but on the messy inheritance. So, there's mm. still, while um, he is kind of getting a lot out of um, the squad in a way which Mourinho wasn't, it still doesn't mean it's a title-winning squad. Mm. There are still major holes and major deficiencies. And, you know, he had to not necessarily rip it up and start again, but um, you know, there was such a lack of uh, positivity around the club, which he, he brought back in to start with. Mm. But, you know, you're not going to win the European Cup or you're not going to challenge for the title with what he's got at the minute. Mm. So, you know, with, he deserves, I believe, he deserves a, a full window behind him at least. Mm. Um, you know, sign a sign a right sided attacker, a midfielder, and centre half, and then see how he, see how he goes from there. But it was interesting. He did a press conference last week, and it was the first time 
and he definitely wasn't taking anything for granted because that's not his way. But it was the first time he started asking questions or answering questions about the future. And he started particularly picking on something that people criticise Mourinho's teams for a lot, which was the lack of ground covered, the distance covered per, per player in the team. And he said, we need to get ourselves up to the level of the work that City and Liverpool do. Because just because you play for Manchester United doesn't mean you don't need to work hard. And he said, and the players next season know that they will have to be fitter. So he has obviously started to look forward himself. I mean, that's another point as well, is if you look at the injuries, um, as soon as you start changing the intensity um, and, you know, they're running an extra 10 kilometres a game and they're, but they're doing it, you know, it's short sprints, it's pressing teams. That's when you start getting the muscle injuries. So that's where you saw Martial and Lingard go off against Liverpool. Uh, they went and they did the, and they had the warm weather training camp in Dubai. Uh, I think it was before the Arsenal Cup game in January, uh, not long after he took over, where I think they did a lot of fitness work and, you know, they worked on the, um, the so things before the Tottenham game in the league, and they worked on the the midfield diamond, which they then used to great effect when they played Spurs at Wembley. Mm. So you know, it's not. Um, this isn't just slapping people on backs. No, and that is faces. True. There yeah. is a lot of what he's done is say tactically quite nuanced mm. and. Say it's not just him; it's the four of them as well. Yeah. Um, that in, that Liverpool game was interesting to me. It was, it was the first one that rang a, a, a kind of a half serious alarm bell with me. Um, it's purely for the reason that he had to make three injury substitutions before half time. Uh, one of which he had stuck Lingard on, uh, and then even though he knew that a half injured Lingard was there, and Rashford, who was carrying an injury. Uh, Used up his last substitution, like that. Now that can, you know that's a once in a in five years happenstance. You know you're you're very unlucky with injuries for that to happen. But it almost told me that he was sort of he's. It was a reminder that he's learning on the job still. You know that 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 is not leaving yourself a a, a substitution is a mistake that you make that. That you that he'll never make again, you know that kind of way. So that, that there is going to be, there is still a, a huge element of learning on the job there. Oh, big side. I think I think he's actually said subsequently that they knew they were to get an hour max out of Lingard because mm. he wasn't fully fit. But they obviously decided that an hour of Lingard to to keep the shape in the system, which he mm. decided was the best way to go about it, was better than not having an hour of it. Mm. But I mean, the ironic thing was there was United could have won that game in the end. So, yes. and I thought. While they didn't dominate the ball, they were relatively comfortable in the circumstances. You know, one, they're there for the taking, really. Uh, listen, Patrick, thanks a million for that, and we will uh, chat again as the great Ulysses Oscar adventure goes along. Uh, thank you to you. Thank you to Jerry and Gavin, who were in earlier to talk about the rugby. Thank you to Declan behind the desk. Thank you to you, Pat. Thanks, Mark. And thanks, everyone. We will see you again next week. <laughs>